Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 32 as we continue to look at a selection of the Psalms over this summer. And as you're turning there, we invite any children who may be participating in our children's class to make their way to the room there. The volunteers will be there to greet you and instruct you in the truth of God's Word there in that context this morning. But as I said this morning here, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 32. So let me read Psalm 32 for us, and then we will take a moment, as we do every week, to pause and pray and ask the Lord for his help as we come before his word. Psalm chapter 32, a mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your, hev- your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin." Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray together. Father, what a good gift it is from your hand that we have been able to gather together here this morning. And so, Father, even right now, we just want to take a moment and acknowledge that We are only here this morning because of the finished work of Christ that stands in our place, the perfection and righteousness of his life that stands in our place, his his death where he, he took the wrath and condemnation that we deserved on himself on the cross so that we might be forgiven so that Psalm 32 can be true in our lives this morning. We are thankful for his resurrection and for the truth that one day we will join him in that glorious resurrection and be in our glorified bodies where we will be with you forever and ever. But Father, until that day, we are thankful that Christ, we are thankful, Jesus, that you right now are sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. We are thankful that you have sent your spirit to dwell in us, to give us understanding And so, Father, we pray that you would do that very thing this morning. Spirit, we pray that you would be here present within us, guiding us into all truth, helping us to see the glories of Christ in Psalm 32. Father, we we desperately need this psalm. Father, I'm sure that there are those among us this morning who are broken in their relationship with you because they have not been faithful to confess their sins And so, Father, I just pray that Psalm 32 would be a convicting psalm for every single one of us, myself included. 
and that we would not allow sin to fester in our lives in such destructive ways, but instead that we would bring them before you, that we would bring them before the foot of the cross and experience the forgiveness that you have already accomplished for us in Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would guide my words this morning, that you would lead us into all truth, that there would be no deceit, that there would be no a leading astray that occurs, but instead we would speak only what is true of you and true of your word. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this broken world that has been devastated by the fall, right, ever since the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve disobeyed the command of God and ate of the fruit of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because of that brokenness, because of that reality of sin, we live in a world where sin is an ever-present reality. And I just want to remind us that it is a sinister reality, that just as in the garden, sin entices us with promises of joy and happiness and satisfaction. But then when it is done with us and when we are done with our sin, it leaves us indifferent to our well-being, indifferent to our true happiness and eternal joy. And it casts us on the side of the road loaded with shame and guilt. Therefore, in this broken, sin-stained world... One of the most important questions we need to answer in our walk with Christ is, what do we do with our sin? What do we do with the shame and guilt of our sin? We ought to pursue holiness. We ought to pursue righteousness. But we are in a sinful world. We are born with a sinful nature. So when we fail, when we have rebelled, when we have given in to temptation... In those moments, what do we do with the shame and guilt of our sin? Because we read Psalm 32, the answer to that question comes from the personal experiences of its author. King David had to deal with this question many, many, many times in his life. He had to learn what it is that he ought to do with his sin. What do you do with the shame and guilt of sin? So Psalm 32, therefore, is a psalm of personal experience from David, but it's also a testimony that we're meant to follow. It's a testimony of David's life that we're meant to then walk in. So while it is, in fact, of course, a beautiful piece of poetry, it's also an immensely practical piece of instruction for you and for me. You see, Psalm 32 reminds us that in this sin-stained world, happiness in the Lord comes through confession, not perfection. Let me say that again. In this sin-stained, broken world, happiness in the Lord, joy in Christ comes through confession, not perfection. And we're going to see that this is a crucial truth for us to remember, that this joy in Christ comes through confession and not perfection. Because if we allow that truth to settle into our hearts, it will radically change the way you deal with sin in your life. And I think you're going to see how that plays out as we move through Psalm 32. So simply what I want us to see in Psalm 32 is, is the answer to the questions that we've been asking. What do we do with our sin? And, and why is it that joy in Christ comes through confession? How does that happen? And so Psalm 32 gives us five answers to that question. Number one, happiness is found in forgiveness. And by the way, I'll talk about this a bit later, but I don't mean cheap, temporary happiness. I mean eternal 
joy in Christ, happiness. That kind of happiness is found in forgiveness. Number two, misery is found in silence. Three, forgiveness is found in confession. Four, safety is found in God's presence. And five, rejoicing is found in the Lord. Now, just as a heads up about kind of how we're going to move through this, the vast majority of our time is going to be spent on the first three of those. Happiness is found in forgiveness. Misery is found in silence. Forgiveness is found in confession. But then what we're going to see is that numbers four and five are the outflow and the result of this truth. This is what happens in our lives when we are faithful to confess our sin. We will find safety in God's presence and we will find rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. But let's, let's take the time to understand these first three points in verses 1 through 6. And let's start right at the beginning in verses 1 and 2, where, Lord willing, we will see that happiness is found in forgiveness. So look there again, Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, in many ways, these verses serve as an introduction to the entire psalm. Ultimately, I think what we can say with these first two verses is David is saying to us, this is what he wants the outcome to be by the time we finish chapter 32. He wants us to experience this reality, the reality of being the blessed ones. And by the way, this word is the same word that was used in Psalm 1. So this language should sound familiar. Nathaniel preached on Psalm 1 for us, which verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. See, blessed Blessed is the man. Blessed is the one. And that word blessed means ultimately happy, joyful. Happy, joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven. That's what it means to be blessed in this context, to experience the joy and happiness in the Lord. And the good news that Psalm 32 reminds us of is that that happiness and that joy can be found even when we don't live up to Psalm chapter 1. Right? Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. But when we do, when we give in to that moment of temptation, we don't have to give up on joy and happiness in the Lord. It can still be found. But it comes through forgiveness. It comes through the Lord covering our sins. It comes through Him not counting our iniquities against us. That blessedness comes through forgiveness. See, verse 1 says, blessed, happy, joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven. That word forgiven means to be lifted up or carried away. It's carrying that image that we talked about a bit when we were in Hebrews about the scapegoat that was part of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. They would confess the sins of God's people over the scapegoat, and then they would send it out into the wilderness, symbolizing that the sins of God's people were being removed from them and taken away. And so our transgressions can be forgiven. They can be removed from us. They can be taken away. That's the imagery being given here. And then the second half of verse 1, it says, the joyful, happier are the ones whose sins are covered. That's the sense of atonement, to be paid for, to be to have their sins covered over and not held against us. And then verse 2 goes on to say, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. 
It's another way of saying that our sins are not imputed to us, which is mind-boggling, right? It is astonishing to think that there is a path that we can take where our sins are not counted against us. That should not make any sense to us, that your sin for which you are responsible, that you committed, there is a path we can take where those sins will not be counted against us will not be imputed to us. And when we find that path that Psalm 32 is going to take us on, Psalm 32 says to us that we will experience joy and happiness in the Lord. And of course we ought to, right? Of course we ought to experience the joy and happiness in the Lord. If if this is true, and, and it is, right? If this is true, if these astonishing realities are true, just think about this language one more time, right? There's a path that your transgressions, your wickedness and rebellion against God can be removed from you. There's a path we can take where our sins can be covered over by God himself, where by God himself, our sin, our iniquities will not be counted against us. Then if that's true, then we ought to have our hearts filled with joy and happiness. Blessed is the one who experiences these realities. This is the good news that the Apostle Paul saw in these first two verses. He quotes Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2 in Romans chapter 4 verses 6 through 8. And this is where Paul says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So you have Paul as he's pinning the book of Romans, looking back on Psalm chapter 32. And what he sees in here is he's interpreting Psalm 32. He says what what Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2 remind us of is that righteousness is not achieved through the works of the law but it is achieved through appealing to God for the forgiveness of our sins through Christ. That's what he says in Romans 4, 6. The blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. That we are blessed not by achieving perfection through righteous works, but through appealing to the cross of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That is the good news of Psalm chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. But notice something that seems a little odd about the end of verse 2. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Sticks out like a bit of a sore thumb. I mean, Paul actually doesn't quote that part of verses 1 and 2. He leaves it off. So what is going on here, right? It seems like strange language. He says your transgressions are forgiven. Your sins can be covered. Your iniquity will not be counted. Then verse 2 says, blessed is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. So what does that have to do with transgressions being forgiven and sins being covered and iniquity not being counted? Because it feels like it's saying we have to not ever fall into the sin of being deceitful, right? What what, what is going on? Well, it only makes sense in the light of verses 3 through 6. So just to forecast a bit what we're going to get into. I think what David is saying, what God is saying to us in that last line of verses 1 and 2, he is saying that we must be honest about our sins before the Lord. That Blessedness is not going to be found if we are deceitful about our sins as we come before the Lord in prayer. So when it says, blessed is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit, it's, it's forecasting, it's foreshadowing what's going to be talked about in the rest of this psalm, that we must speak truth to God about our sins. 
And we're going to see that even immediately as we transition in to verse 3, that we must not try to fool God as if we could in the first place. We must not try to fool him with deceitfulness and dishonesty about our sins because that deceitfulness and dishonesty that we think is going to protect us from experiencing misery will in fact bring it on our heads. And that brings us to the second answer to this question of how do we find joy and forgiveness? How do we how do we, what do we do with our sins? Well, we must remember, number two, that misery is found in silence. Misery is found in silence. Look there with me at verses three and four. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So verse 3 begins with the word for. It's saying because. It's connecting it to what was said before. And as I just mentioned, what was said before is blessed is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. Why? Because when you keep silent about your sins before the Lord, you're going to experience grief and misery. Therefore, we must be truthful and speak of our sins to the Lord. You see, David is telling us from his personal experience what happened to him when he kept silent about his sins, when he refused to confess them, when he kept them bottled up, when he did not bring them before the Lord. This was what he experienced. He says, when he kept silent, his bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Just constant misery. Now, of course, this is poetic language, so we don't know exactly what David is getting at. We, it does seem to indicate that there was not just emotional turmoil, but even physical turmoil that David was experiencing. Perhaps his shame and guilt had impacted his appetite. He wasn't able to eat, and it caused him to lose weight, and he was miserable. That's possibly what it's talking about. Maybe not. Maybe it was the emotional stress of keeping his sins bottled up and the secrets that wore him down, and he was just physically distressed, unable to sleep. We, we don't know what it was exactly, but we know David was going through a miserable experience when he kept silent about his sins. His bones were wasting away. It was groaning all day long. It never relented. In fact, the end of verse 4 says that his strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He was just worn out, exhausted from not dealing honestly with his sins before the Lord. Now, the other thing I want to make clear from verse 4 is that David isn't just talking about some psychological battle that he was facing, right? It's, 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 this is not saying, look, he was dealing with anxiety about a sin, so David just needed a therapist, right? That's not what's happening here. Because what does verse 4 say? For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. This was God's doing in David's life. This distress, this misery that David was experiencing was coming directly from the hand of God, the unrelenting hand of God. Day and night, the hand of the Lord was heavy upon David. Now, as we read this, right, it's tempting to read that as an act of punishment from God. But what I want you to hear this morning is that God's hand being heavy on David was not God's wrath against David. It was not God's punishment toward David. It was God's kindness to David. It was his kindness to David. It was a gift from God to him. 
Because God wants to help David. God wants to help us break through the deceptive pleasure of sin and instead help us feel the guilt of its wickedness and the rebellion and the destructive nature of what it is. And I just want to remind us that we must make no mistake about it, that to feel, to be sensitive to the reality of sin and the brokenness that it caused, to feel the weight of the guilt and shame of sin is a gift from God. Because there are those who journey so far into their sin that God gives over to sin. We see that in Romans chapter 1. It's this downward spiral that God gives over people to their sin, right? You can, Romans chapter 1 verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. He let them just continue on. And then a few verses later in Romans 1 verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then again in Romans 1.28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do, uh, to do what ought not to be done. He just let them keep spiraling farther and farther and farther. Let their hearts become harder and harder and harder and more indifferent and more indifferent to sin until they have a debased mind where they can barely even feel the wickedness and the evil of what they're doing. That's an act of God's wrath. An act of his kindness is what we read in verse 4. For his hand to be heavy upon us so that we can be aware of the destructive nature of sin in our life because of the brokenness that it creates between us and God. Now, you know, it's easy looking at it from the outside, reading about somebody else's experiences to say, right, that this is a gift of God's grace to him. But, and, it, and it is. But it didn't make his misery and his pain any less real. This was real. This was real anguish. This is real distress that David was experiencing. And those dark and difficult days reminded him of his deceitful position of silence before God. Now, what I want to be sure we realize is that verses 3 and 4 go against our just basic sinful human instincts. What is your just instinctual response to sin? It's to hide it, to cover it up so that no one will know. Don't talk about it. Right? You think, we think, our, our basic gut instinct response to sin, when we sin, is to hide it, shelter it, cover it up. Happiness is found in that. If nobody finds out about it, maybe we're not going to have to face the consequences of it. If we can just keep it hidden, then we're not going to have to deal with the reality of it. It won't harm our reputation if nobody knows about it. So my reputation is protected. What God thinks of me is protected. I'm going to keep it hidden, and I'll find joy and happiness in that way. And David says, while we think that's the path to joy and happiness, it's actually the path to destruction and misery and anguish and groaning all day long. Now listen, for those who are following Jesus, remaining silent before God about your sin is destructive. But hear me this morning. It is also true that you may not realize just how destructive it is because you've kept silent about it for so long. See, there's something I really want to guard against this morning. I want to guard against any of you. I want to guard against me reading verses 3 and 4 and thinking, I don't feel that way. My bones aren't wasting away. I'm not groaning all day long. My strength's not dried up like the heat of the summer. I must be doing okay. No, there's, there's a state you can live in. There's a state of misery you can exist in without even fully realizing it. There's a kind of joy in Christ that you can be missing out on because you forgot what it was like to have it in the first place. 
because it's become so distant from you that you don't realize just how miserable you actually are. You can be living in a state of groaning without even knowing that it's happening to you. Because trust me, when you When it happens, when you finally stop being silent about your sins, you're going to be awakened to just how miserable you were and how much joy in Christ there is to be had. Sometimes we can go so long without confession that we forget the weight of sin we're carrying around. We forget the groaning and the misery that we're experiencing, right? It's like the the old cliche of the, you know, the frog and the slowly heating up water, the slowly boiling water, right? If you throw him in the hot water, he's going to immediately hop out. But if you just slowly inch it up a little bit each time, eventually he's just going to die because he doesn't realize the water is getting to a place of deadly heat. In fact, as I was thinking about this, it reminds me of a, this is going to seem trite, but I think, it, I think it's a good example of what happens. So it reminds me of a problem we've been having with our refrigerator at home for a long time now. All right, you're going to think this is, this is trite, but it was misery for me. All right, so the water dispenser in our refrigerator for years now has been the most annoying trickle of water that you can imagine. And our kids refuse to drink water out of the sink because it's gross, it's nasty, we want refrigerator water. And, you know, kids these days, they can't go for like 10 minutes without water. And so they have these huge cups of water and they stick it under And it is like 10 minutes of just trickling water. Drives me crazy, right? Just use the sink. Get it over with. (laughs) This is painful. But then we had some other problems, and I'm not going to get into all the details of this with our refrigerator. The ice maker wasn't working, and so I got into it and figured out. In the middle of figuring out why the ice maker wasn't working, come to realize one of a couple of different reasons it wasn't working is because there was barely any water coming into the ice maker to make the ice. And then I realized, you know, my, the cheapness, I guess, I sometimes struggle with and the whole water. You know, I just get water out of the sink. You're supposed to replace the water filter in your refrigerator, right? But I don't use it. I don't worry about a water filter. I'm just going to the sink. So I don't care about the water filter, me. So I'm not spending 50 bucks on a new water filter. But if I can't get ice, I start to care. So we buy a new water filter because I find out, hey, that can get clogged up and cause problems. So we replaced the water filter, took like one minute and 30 seconds to do that. And all of a sudden, it takes about three seconds to fill up a big old cup of water now. (laughs) Now, here's the point. We lived literally for years with a problem, a trickle of water that I thought was normal, right? We just dealt with it. This is what it's like. This is what our refrigerator does. Nothing we can do about it. But it was not like that when the refrigerator was new. But it had been so long <laughs> since the water had come out with that kind of force, we forgot what it was supposed to be like. See, this is what can happen with unconfessed sin in our lives. We can go so long not confessing our sins, not being honest with God about our sins. We can go so long being silent about our sins that we may not even realize that we've lost the joy in Christ that we once had. And we're in a state of misery and angst and groaning, and we don't even know it. And so even if you don't feel the reality of verse 4 this morning, of verses 3 and 4 this morning, just know that if you're not confessing your sins before the Lord, that is where you are. Because the truth of God's word supersedes our feelings. And it says to us, when we keep silent about our sin, We are in a state of misery in our relationship with the Lord. Sin brings brokenness to our relationship with God. Confession restores that relationship with him. 
And that's why we need to see this third truth. Forgiveness is found in confession. Forgiveness is found in confession. Look at verses 5 and 6. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. This is such beautiful, simple language in verse 5, right? I love this, right? I acknowledged my sin to you. I'm not going to be deceitful. I'm not going to be silent. I'm just going to come before you, Lord, and I'm going to acknowledge my sins before you. And David says when we do that, when we just acknowledge them, that's what confession is, right? I think sometimes theological terms can feel overwhelming, right? What does it mean to confess? What must I do? But here David says, just acknowledge your sins to him. Acknowledge that they're wicked. Acknowledge that they're evil. Acknowledge that you're sorry for them. Bring them before him. Be honest about them. Don't be silent about them. Don't be deceitful with God. Just acknowledge your sins to him, and you will experience the forgiveness that he is ready to offer. You know, I love how verse 5 connects with verse 1, right? It's using the same words, transgression and sin and iniquity. And here it's saying to us, we acknowledge our sin to God. We, if we don't cover our iniquity, if we say, I confess my transgressions to the Lord, if we do those things, then God will forgive the iniquity of our sin. Now, particularly, I love the language of that second line of verse 5. This is one description of confession that David offers us. And he says, I did not cover my iniquity. I did not cover my iniquity. Now, the reason I love that is because I have this image in my mind, right? We love to keep our sin covered up, secret, so that no one knows about it. We think we can hide it from God. And it's this image, right, of David taking his sins that he's committed, and he just rips the cover off. He just rips the veil off before God says, look, I'm not, here they are. But here's, here's the beautiful reality when we connect verse 5 to verse 1, right? When we rip that cover off, when we tear the veil back and reveal our sins before the Lord, what does he do with them? Does he pick them up and dangle them in your face, right? How dare you, you evil, wicked, terrible person? Is, is that what he does? Now, what, what does verse 1 say? Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. See that image? We rip the cover off before God, and what does he do with it? He covers it with the blood of Jesus. He covers it. He covers it over. He doesn't count it against us, right? When we're willing to rip the cover back, he covers it up himself. And we don't stand condemned because of our sin, though we should, though we fully deserve it, we stand forgiven because he covers it with the blood of Jesus, because he covers it with his sacrificial work on the cross where Jesus laid down his life and he took the punishment and condemnation that we all deserve so that we could have eternal life in him so that when we rip back the cover on our sins, when we refuse to cover them any longer, as we come before the Lord in confession, he covers them over. And then we experience joy and happiness in the Lord. We're, we're the blessed ones. We're not miserable anymore because the work of Christ in our place is enough. Look, this is so important to remember because we can read verse 5 and it sounds so simple, right? Acknowledge our sins, don't cover them up, confess our transgressions, and he will forgive us. And he will. But let us not forget what it took to achieve that forgiveness. 
Right? It's beautiful because God doesn't demand some Herculean task. When we reveal our sins, he doesn't say, well, you've got to do X, Y, and Z before I'm going to forgive you. No, he doesn't do any of that because the task has already been accomplished in Jesus, but it was a costly task. Forgiveness came at the price of the life of Jesus Christ. It came at the cost of the cross. You see, every sin that has ever been committed and ever will be committed must be dealt with. I want you to hear me this morning. God's wrath will be executed against every single sin that has ever occurred and will ever occur. And that has either happened through the cross where Jesus took it on himself or it's in hell for all eternity. But God will be just, which is the beauty that Paul says to us in Romans chapter 3 when he is describing what Christ accomplished on the cross. And he says that it was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Listen to this. So that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in him. The reason God can declare us righteous when we trust in Christ is because Christ bore the wrath in our place. It's true for us, and it was true for David. For us, it was looking back. For David, it was looking forward. But that forgiveness was no less purchased by the blood of Jesus on the cross. Which is why it's so important to remember that our act of confession doesn't earn our forgiveness. Let me say that again. Our act of confession does not earn our forgiveness. Christ earned our forgiveness on the cross. Jesus did that. But when we confess our sins, we experience the forgiveness that God provides for us. And our relationship with him is restored that had been hindered by our previous silence. This is so important to remember. Sin can hinder your relationship with the Lord, right? So there's a mystery here, but I want to affirm that all who trust in Christ have God's steadfast love directed toward them. You are adopted as his children. There's nothing that can separate you from him for all eternity. That is absolutely true. And yet at the very same time, our sin hinders. There's a, there's a brokenness that occurs in that relationship when we refuse to confess our sins before the Lord. Doesn't mean he quits on you or gives up on you or is going to condemn you to hell, right? But it does mean that there is there's a hindrance that happens. That's what Paul's talking about, I think, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, when he says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. More directly, we see that just as one example of this in 1 Peter 3, 7, which is where Peter's instructing husbands, and he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is just one small example, but it is an example, right? If you husbands do not treat your wives in a godly, honorable way, if you don't show honor to her as a fellow heir of the grace of life, your prayers will be hindered. That sin will lead to a hindrance of your prayers before the Lord. So you need to confess that, repent of that, and strive by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to love her well. You see, the most loving thing God can do for us as his children when we're living in unrepentant and unconfessed sin <clears throat> is not relate to us like everything is okay. That would be terrible because then we would think everything's fine and we would just continue on and then we would fall into what would actually be called God's wrath that we saw in Romans 1, spiraling farther and farther and farther into sin. No, it's God's grace to us 
that he shows us the destructive nature of sin that can hinder our relationship with him. Therefore, let's not be silent about our sin. Let's experience the joy of verses 1 and 2. Let's experience the reality of verse 5 and and confess our sins and experience the forgiveness that he offers us because of the finished work of Christ, right? It is therefore the result of that we see in verse 6. Because this is true, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to God at a time when he may be found. Don't delay, right? Do it today. Confess your sin today. Let this be the call to all of us this morning to make confession a regular part of our walk with Christ, which is why the result of that is that we ought to draw near to God. We see, number four, that safety is found in God's presence. Safety is found in God's presence. There at the end of verse six, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Some translations render that the flood waters. What it means is that when you draw near to God, when you confess your sin to him, when you refuse to remain silent and you no longer cover your sin, when you draw near to him, the rush of the flood waters are not going to reach you. You're going to be protected. He's going to, verse 7, be a hiding place for you. He's going to preserve you for trouble. He's going to surround you with shouts of deliverance, right? This is really good news, right? When we confess our sins, when we draw near to him, we're going to find safety in the presence of God. He's going to instruct us and teach us in the way that we should go. He's not going to let us wander off into destructive, evil, wicked paths. He's going to counsel us and keep his eye upon us. So he says, look, don't... You have to love this illustration, right? So he says, don't be like a horse or a mule, you stubborn people, right? Don't make God have to hook up a bit and bridle and drag you into his presence. We should run, sprint with everything we have toward him. Because when we do that, we will find safety and comfort. You see verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. You see, again, this is the opposite reaction that we typically have to sin. We want to run and hide. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden, right? Sin, instinct, run and hide. Nobody has to teach a child what to do when they're up to no good and you walk in the room. right? What do they do? They either immediately start pretending like they're not doing anything or they take off like put a hole in the wall, they're leaving the room so fast, right? But that's what we do. Instead of running toward God, instead of running toward the cross, instead of running toward confession, we run away from him because we're fearful and we think misery will be in his presence. And what Psalm 32 reminds us of is when we sin, we must run toward him headlong with everything that we've got. Rip back the veil on our sins, uncover them, confess them. And when we do that, that's where joy and happiness in Christ is found. That's where safety in his presence is found. And when we do that, he'll protect us. He's not going to let the floodwaters of his wrath come upon us. We're going to be safe in the hiding place of his presence. Which brings us to the final glorious truth, which is number five. Rejoicing is found in the Lord. Rejoicing is found in the Lord. You see that in verse 11. Be glad in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, I just want to remind you, when it says righteous here, it doesn't mean that only those who live perfect, righteous lives are going to experience this joy and rejoicing. No, remember, the righteous are those who are not silent about their sin. 
The righteous are those who are not deceitful about their sin. The righteous are those who uncover their sin before the Lord and who confess them before him. And when you do that, when you put your trust in him and in the finished work of Christ on the cross, you will be glad in the Lord and rejoice. You will shout for joy. We must shout for joy. We are being instructed to be glad in him, to rejoice in him, to shout before him, to not hold back, to not be hindered. Look, it's one of the things I love about this church, that I love about you all. But I just want to remind us, let's keep it going. When we sing, there's no need to sing quietly in your seat. (laughs) Sing out. Shout to the Lord. I don't mean do it in a distracting way where nobody else can worship because you're drawing attention to yourself. But I mean, there's no need to be hindered before the Lord. Rejoice in Him. You have so much to rejoice in, right? This should blow us away this morning. Your sins that belong to you will not be counted against you. Your sins that belong to you, when you uncover them, are going to be covered up by the blood of Jesus. Your sins can be forgiven for all eternity. You get to be in the presence of God that you do not deserve of his joy, his love, his presence forever. When you deserve to be in hell separated from him, experiencing wrath and destruction forever. We have so much to rejoice in this morning. So let us do it. Let us rejoice in the Lord as we sing before him. I love that we're going to get to respond to this psalm exactly as it has called us to do in verse 11, to rejoice and shout for joy in song this morning. So let me pray for us, and then we will do just that. Father, we are thankful for the good news of the gospel. Father, I pray that every person in this room, including myself, would be convicted of our lack of confession. And Father, I pray that you would, that you would work in us, reveal to us, where we are failing to do that. Father, I I look forward to how you're going to restore the joy of fellowship with you for, I'm sure, uh, a a number of people in this room who maybe have not been regularly confessing their sin before you. And so, Father, I pray that you would convict us to be honest, to uncover our sins so that we can experience what it means for the blood of Jesus to cover it over, for it to not be counted against us, and for us to walk in the freedom of the forgiveness that is given to us in Jesus. May he receive all of the glory this morning. And Father, now may we respond to Psalm 32 with rejoicing and shouts of joy this morning. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.